You know, it is a blessing to have people who are gifted as musicians. We see even from the scriptures that the Lord has put his spirit within people to be able to do that which is pleasing in his sight. As we listen to an instrumental piece, and we do that as a part of a worship service, the purpose of that is to lead us into worship of the Lord God. And so we, and our young people have done so well at this, they've chosen hymns that reflect truths and hymns that will be familiar to you so that you know the words and you know the message behind the tune. And that's what keeps it from just simply being a performance rather than a part of worship, which is what it ought to be. So that song, it is well with my soul, you know, the great and glorious truths within that, because we're not here to perform. We're not here to please people. We are here to worship God. And so we're thankful that we can come together and we can do the different aspects that are glorifying to him and bring glory and honor to his name and lead us in worship of our great God. Well, we've made it to Revelation chapter 20. And we're going to take some time on Revelation 20. Now, I will be absent next Sunday. But the plan is, with the Lord's help, to take several messages on Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. And in all of this, as the word is preached, we ask that if you hear something different than you have heard before, if this perspective on the millennium is new to you, give a hearing to the word of God. And remember, as I've said throughout the book of Revelation, that there are things within the Christian camp about which true spirit-filled, godly, and wise people have disagreed, but we can agree to disagree on the minor issues. As long as we see Christ, we see him exalted, we're worshiping him, and we're holding to the essentials. And so when it comes to the whole teaching about the end times, as we call it, when you look to... The people of God throughout history, and as they have written down what they believe the scriptures teach in the historic confessions of faith, what you see regarding the end times is there are essential things that are held in common. And that is that Christ will bodily return to this earth in triumph and in victory. That Christ will raise the dead, both the righteous and the unrighteous. That There will be the eternal state and the unrighteous will be cast into the lake of fire. The righteous will inherit the new heavens and new earth where they will dwell in glory with the Lord for all eternity. These are central. We must believe these. We must not deny these. But there are some things that we'll disagree on as we go through. But let us hear the word of God. Let us see Christ exalted. And the text that we have before us today is a text of victory. It's a text of victory. As you read through the scriptures and you read various passages of scripture, it is essential that our hearts and our emotions are conformed to 
the central message and truth in the text. And so some texts, as we read them, God would have us weep. Other texts, as we read them, God would have us sing and rejoice. The text that we look to today is a text that proclaims victory of Christ. It it, it proclaims rejoicing in Christ Jesus. It proclaims what he has accomplished and how he will make all things right in the end. And so we look to him and we ask that he would aid us even in our spirits and our emotions as we study the scriptures. Revelation chapter 20, I begin reading with verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of that dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshiped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle whose number is as the sand of the sea. Then they went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven out or from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. And there they will be tormented day and night forever. Now, as we approach this text in the history of the Christian church, There are several different views about the end times that are described as millennial views. And that's because in Revelation chapter 20, we have this period a thousand years mentioned a couple of times. And the word millennium means a thousand. And so the views of the millennium are the views of when will Christ come and what will take place at his coming in regard to this text, Revelation chapter 20, and how does this fit in? Just so you know, those views can be divided basically into a premillennial view, and that says that Christ will come pre before the millennium. And then there's a view post-millennialism. It says Christ will come after this millennial time that is mentioned here. There's a view that has been called amillennialism, and we don't prefer this term because the word ah usually, or when you put ah in front of a term, it usually means no or not. But 
amillennialism believes that Christ will return after this millennial period. So basically, of the classical views, they refer to when will Christ come, and the preview says that he will come before this that is spoken of in Revelation 20, and the other views say that he will come after that which is spoken of here. Now, as we look at Revelation, we have been approaching the book from the perspective that it is divided into seven segments primarily. And that these seven segments cover events from the first advent of Christ, his first coming, until his second coming. And that those seven then will repeat many of those events that take place and they give a a slightly different perspective on them oftentimes. Some of those segments focus more on the events that will occur the closer we get to Christ's coming. Some of those focus a little bit more on what happened at Christ's uh, exaltation in his first coming. But these seven segments run parallel with one another the inter-advental period, the period between the first coming and the second coming of Christ Jesus. So as we get to Revelation chapter 20, Revelation 19 has just finished the sixth segment. And when we get to Revelation 20, we're starting over again and we're going back to things that were accomplished by Christ at his first coming and then looking forward in this text as well to things which he will accomplish at his second coming. What evidence is there for this understanding? We've looked at this many times, but as you look at the ends of these different segments, these parallel segments, you see over and over again the final judgment mentioned. You see that it says... All the way back towards the beginning of Revelation, the great day of God's wrath has come. If we are reading the book chronologically, sequentially, to say that as you work your way through from chapter 4 all the way through 22, it's describing events that unfold in time one after the other after the other. So chapter 19 happens after the events in chapter 18 and chapter 20 follows and happens after 19 in time and space, if you're looking at that, then it doesn't make sense of these passages which show over and over again the depictions of the great day of the Lord, the final judgment of the Lord that is to come. And we've looked at those probably a good half a dozen times over the past year or so. So what do we see at the end of Revelation chapter 19? We see at the end of Revelation chapter 19, the final coming of Christ, the second advent of Christ and his conquering the enemies of God. We see Armageddon at the end of chapter 19. And you know what we see in chapter 20, beginning in verse seven? We see Armageddon again. You see, it's repeating the same event. Look at chapter 19. Heaven is open in verse 11, a white horse. He who sat on him was called faithful and true and righteousness. He judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire on his head were many crowns. 
He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. His name is called the Word of God. And his army and the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen. And it goes on to say he has a sharp sword that comes out of his mouth and with it he should strike the nations. Now you recognize this is figurative language. The whole book of Revelation is it's a series of visions given to the Apostle John. And this is highly figurative. All of these images are figurative. They point to realities. There are things here clearly that is true. Is Jesus real? Absolutely. But when he comes, is he literally going to have a sword sticking out of his mouth? No. Jesus is the Lamb of God who was sacrificed to take away our sins. But is he literally a sheep with its throat cut and blood all over it, like is pictured in Revelation chapter 5. No, you see those things are figurative. They picture the realities of who Christ is and what he will accomplish. And in each of these visions, there are central points which picture central characteristics about Christ and what he will do. The picture of the sword coming out of his mouth, the blood stained upon his white robe, that's a picture of him coming in judgment to judge the enemies of God. And what do we see 19 and following? We see Armageddon. We see all the kings of the earth gathered together. And we saw that at the end of chapter 16 as well. It's the same event, Armageddon. I saw the beasts, the kings of the earth, their armies gathered to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured with him, the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark. This is verse 20. And those who worshipped his image, these two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. The rest were killed with the sword, which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. I mean, this is, notice the inclusive language here. It's saying, the beast, the kings of the earth, they're all gathered here. And they're all destroyed when Christ comes. That's all of his enemies. Now, look at, Verse 7 of chapter 20. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison, will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog to gather them together to battle. Whose numbers is the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth, surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was cast in the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever. It's the same event. It's the same event as described in chapter 16, where it says all the kings of the earth gathered together to oppose Christ, and then he, he judged them, and they were condemned. Decisive victory. You see, Revelation repeats over and over again the same events. And each one of those repetitions gives different qualities and characteristics of Christ so that we see him in all of his glory. You know, what makes a, a diamond on a ring beautiful? Have you ever seen a diamond that's not been cut? It looks like a rock. It looks like a little pebble. It looks like something you'd find in your driveway. But what happens when it's cut? It's cut at multiple different angles with precision and skill. And when you see 
light shining through that and it hits all of those different angles. You see the sparkles and the beauty and the glory of it come out. You see, the book of Revelation is providing us multiple different angles and glimpses of Christ and who he is and his beauty. And as we see all of those, we are led to worship him. I mean, he is he is glorious. He's magnificent. And the Bible gives us so many descriptions of him. You know, the names and descriptions of Christ, hundreds of them in the scriptures. He's the Lamb of God, but he's also the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He's Emmanuel, God with us, but he's also the, the great judge who judges the world in righteousness. You see, he is all of these things. And we need to worship Christ for all that he is. And see him in all of his glory and in his beauty. And as we move forward and as we look at this, I pray even if we disagree about the timing of these things, that we can see Christ in his glory and beauty and we can worship him. As God would have us to do. You know, I was speaking with a pastor yesterday and he mentioned having been at a lecture of a prominent theologian. And that theologian uh, stood up and he said, I have a guest speaker coming today. His name's Jesus. And he said, okay, now if I said that to you and a door were to open and Jesus would walk in, what would you see? You know, some people might see a baby in a manger. Some people might see, you know, these crazy photograph or these crazy paintings, you know, where you got Jesus, who is actually a, a Near Eastern Jew, and he's portrayed with blue eyes and blonde hair and everything else. You know, it's just OK. Well, he said, how many how many of you would see Jesus like in the terms of Revelation chapter 20, the picture of Jesus that we have here? Walking in with a blood-stained robe, fire flashing from his eyes, coming in vengeance to conquer and to make all wrongs right. You see, the reality is, Jesus is and has been all that the scriptures say. But the Jesus who we know and we will see as his children is the resurrected, the glorified, and the triumphant Jesus. He is triumphant. This text proclaims his triumph. And he triumphed at the cross and he ascended into heaven where he rules as he sits on the throne at the right hand of the Father. Well, considering the question of of when do these events take place in Revelation chapter 20, I believe that we need, first of all, a summary of this. Notice, again, that John is seeing visions. What does it say in verse 1? Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven. John is the seer. He's seeing visions that are given to him by God. These things are not literally taking place. He is seeing visions 
of God. So he sees an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, the devil and Satan. This vision that we see here in verses one through three is a vision of Satan cast down to the earth. Then in verse four, John is given another vision. And this vision is of heaven and what is taking place in heaven. Notice this. And I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God who had not worshipped the beast or his image. Whenever you see thrones mentioned in the book of Revelation in these visions, it's always a heavenly vision. This is the heavenly throne room that is being mentioned. These are the martyred saints. Notice it says, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Christ. It doesn't say I saw their bodies. I saw their souls. The, this is a vision of the heavenly throne room. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And then we see earth again. Beginning in chapter seven. Now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison, and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. So we see earth, heaven and then earth mentioned here. I saw an angel coming down from heaven. Verse one, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand, he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, bound him for a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit, shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. Let's consider those three verses for a moment. Is there any figurative language in these verses? There is much that is figurative in these verses. Think about this for a minute. An angel comes down from heaven having a key to a bottomless pit. Now, first of all, bottomless pit, that that would be figurative. A pit with no bottom in it whatsoever. This is figurative. Do, do we think that this is a, a real key that is, it's like made out of metal and he's got a real key and that there's a real pit somewhere in the earth and that that pit literally has no bottom and it's got some type of door that goes over the top of it, which would keep a spirit being in because Satan is a spirit. He's not a physical being, right? You see, this is figurative language. It's symbolic. The key symbolizes that Satan is going to be locked up or bound in some way, as it mentions here. But notice it says having a, a, a great chain in his hand and lays hold of, what does it say next? A dragon. Is Satan liter- literally a dragon? No, you see, that's figurative. It's describing his character- characteristic of his ferocity and, 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 and power lays hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, bound him for a thousand years. Well, Satan is a spirit. He's not a material or physical being. So this is not a 
like a metal chain with great metal links and wrapping up a spirit being and somehow binding him. You see, this whole passage is just chock full of figurative language. Now, it's representing absolute realities. Is Satan real? Absolutely is he real. Is this a real angel that's coming? Yes, absolutely. Is Satan being bound? Absolutely so. But this is the book of Revelation, folks. It's, it's, the, it's apocalyptic literature. The very nature of apocalyptic literature is it is absolutely replete with, filled to the brim, chock full of figurative imagery. And we need to approach it that way if we're going to rightly interpret it. Okay? Now, some have said, well, we have to follow a literal interpretation of Scripture. Well, of course, we follow a literal interpretation of Scripture. We, we look to find out what it literally means. But all of the people who say, if you don't agree with me on when this is, you're not following a literal interpretation of Scripture, they're not interpreting it all literally either. They're not literally saying it's a, an actual metal chain with metal links that's tying up Satan, who's a spiritual being. They don't say that Jesus is literally a lamb with its throat cut and blood streaming all over it. No, they know that it's figurative. It's just a difference of opinion, which items are figurative and which are not. Okay, so there have been accusations against people in the past saying, well, you don't take the Bible literally. Well, th those are unkind accusations and inaccurate, unkind and inaccurate, uncharitable and inaccurate. Not at all. We look for what it literally means. And there are multiple figures of speech in the scriptures, especially in the book of Revelation. What about, what about the, the very time period of a thousand years? The numbers throughout Revelation are predominantly figurative. They're figurative. And we don't look at the book of Revelation and say it says a thousand years. It has to be literal thousand years of our 24 hour days, 365 days, you know, a thousand of that. Why? Because over and over again, figurative. And when when you think about these years that are chosen, they're representative. Thousand, ten times ten times ten. What is the number ten? It's the number of completion. What is it saying? It's the complete period of time for this millennial kingdom. The 144,000 that are mentioned in the book of Revelation. 12 times 12 times 1,000, which is 10 times 10 times 10. You have 12. 12 was representative of the people of God. You think about the 12 patriarchs. And then Jesus chose how many apostles? 12 apostles. And then what is a thousand? Ten times ten times ten? It's completion. This is speaking about the whole people of God throughout the ages, the 144,000. You see, the connections there in understanding that these are figurative just stand out then from the text. They make sense. So, considering this question of when, and I've, I've said this before, and here's kind of the reality. There's much, much agreement in the Christian camp about many of the details of the book of Revelation. I think where the most controversy comes in is the question of when. Oftentimes, it's not the what question, it's the when question. 
that gets people all up in arms against one another. But the reality is, one of the main practical exhortations in the Word of God is that when we consider the coming of Christ and His victory and the things that He has accomplished in His redemptive work, we're supposed to comfort one another with these words, the Scriptures say. But there have been a lot of battles within the Christian camp where people are calling other people heretics, where they're saying, I don't even think you're saved if you don't agree with my exact scheme of things. And that's not comforting one another with these words. (laughs) All right? So I hope we can take comfort in the fact that Christ is victorious and that he will accomplish his purposes. Now, I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, cast him into the bottomless pit, shut him up, set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. I want to go back for just a moment and review the Bible's timeline of history. If you look at it, if you look at the biblical timeline in its most general and its broadest form. So envision a timeline. Children, you who are in school, you know what a timeline is, right? You got a line drawn out of some kind and then maybe you got little lines coming down, you know, like little uh, skyscrapers, you know, they come down and they sit on that line and then you have descriptions of events in history and dates that are listed all down that timeline. Well, as you think of the timeline of all of human history, you could even envision a line across this wall right here. The timeline of human history in the scriptures is divided most broadly into two ages. Two ages. The Bible uses the terminology, the two ages, this age and the age to come. So you have this age... In the timeline of biblical history. And then you have the age to come. And what the Bible teaches is that these ages, these two ages encompass all of human history. That they are different ages with different qualities or characteristics. And that the dividing point between the two ages is the return of Christ. It's Christ's coming. This age, the age to come. This age is from the very creation of the world, Adam and Eve, all the way until Christ comes. And then the age to come is that glorious age after Christ comes in the, in the judgment and the new heavens and new earth where we live in eternity with the Lord for all eternity. Let's uh, look at the scriptural support for this for just a moment. And then we'll explain how this ties in with Revelation and our, our text and our question of when this takes place look at mark chapter 3 mark chapter 3 
And we're not focused on the unpardonable sin, so don't get distracted about that here in this text. But Mark chapter 3, and begin with verse 22. Also, as we read through this, there are two things I want us to know. One, Jesus is going to talk about this unpardonable sin and how long it will be before somebody who sins this can be forgiven. And since it's unpardonable, the answer is pretty clear. That is never, okay? But two, as we look at this and as we look at a parallel passage in Matthew chapter 12, notice the terminology it uses regarding Satan, okay? So... Let's start reading with verse 22. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem said concerning Jesus, he has Beelzebub and by the ruler of the demons, he casts out demons. So he called them to himself and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but has an end. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first, what? Binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house. Now let's just think about that for a moment. Who is the strong man that is being bound so that his house can be plundered? Here's the context. Jesus' disciples had been sent out by Jesus himself and given authority and power by Jesus to cast out demons who are Satan's minions controlling Satan's people, okay? And then the Pharisees say, oh, well, Jesus, you're casting out demons by the power of Satan because they didn't think he was of God. They hated him, so they, they couldn't believe that he was casting out demons by the power of God. So they say, oh, you're doing it by the power of Satan. And Jesus is saying, no, that's not possible. Satan's not gonna cast out his own minions controlling his own property, And then Jesus gives this illustration of the strong man. And he says, if there's a man who is strong and well-armed, that's the picture, and he's guarding his house and his property, if you're going to rob from him, if you're going to take something that's his, what are you going to have to do first? You're going to have to go through him, right? I mean, it's it's like men, you know, you're in your house, and somebody wants to break into your house, and they want to mess with your people. Your attitude should be, you got to go through me first before you're going to get to them. Yeah. Right? Well, what Jesus is saying here, though, is Satan in this imagery is the strong man. And he's saying that Satan has to be bound before the demons can be kicked out and Satan's property can be claimed and taken. And so who's the stronger man in this image? It's Christ. It's Jesus. Jesus is the stronger man who is saying in this very context that he is binding Satan when demons are being cast out of people by the power of God. Okay? Well, then consider here as we go on. He says, Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men in whatever blasphemies they may utter. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, notice this word, never has forgiveness but is subject to eternal condemnation. Now, to show you how that ties in with the terminology of the two ages, look over the parallel passage in Matthew chapter 12, beginning with verse 24, Matthew 12. Now, notice this. What did Jesus say about 
When the person who commits a sin can be forgiven, he says never, never forgiven. In Matthew chapter 12, this is another account of the exact same event. And just like in Revelation, the Gospels have parallel accounts that some will add more details so we get the fuller picture of what was accomplished. Revelation is doing the same thing over and over again. Notice this in Matthew chapter 12, in verse 31, Jesus says, Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him. Notice this now, either in this age or the age to come. Do you see the connection there? This age or the age to come. Jesus says as he's explaining this and we put it all together, he's saying that the person who commits this sin will never be forgiven. It's an eternal sin. He will never be forgiven in this age or in the age to come. What does that indicate? That this age and the age to come encompasses all of the time that that person is in existence. All of the time. There's not some age in in between in regard to the broad timeline All of that existence of that individual. So the Bible divides time, human time, human existence, two ages, this age and the age to come. And these are very different ages. A key, key text for eschatology is chapter 20. Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20. Do you realize that? Luke chapter 20 is a key text regarding the end times and understanding the end times. Luke chapter 20 and look at verse 34. Jesus answered and said to them, the sons of which age? This age, marry and are given in marriage, but those who are counted worthy to attain to what age? That age. And notice the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. What are we seeing here? The age, the, the two, two ages terminology. And it's saying these are very different ages. In this age, people are married and are given in marriage. But in the age to come, and notice what is connected with the age to come, the resurrection and attaining unto the resurrection of glory. And it says it'll be like the angels in heaven. They'll not be married. So as you think about this age, this age has marriage. The age to come, no marriage. All right. What else do we see that is spoken of as a distinction in these two ages? Nor can they die anymore, for they're equal to the sons, or equal to the angels, and are the sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. So look at this. This age, marriage, and death. And you don't need to necessarily put an equal sign between those two. For some people, marriage is death. Not for me. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. (laughs) 
I don't see my wife in here, but she is a blessing to me. Okay. Marriage and death in this age. In the age to come, no marriage, no death. No death. The Bible also tells us, and we're not going to turn there, but in the book of Galatians, it says that this age is a present evil age. So in this age, there is sin and evil. In the age to come, there is no sin and no evil. Okay? All of human history divided into two ages, qualitatively different ages. This one characterized by sin, by evil, by death, by marriage. This one characterized no sin, no evil, no death, no marriage. What divides the two ages? It's the return of Christ. It's his second coming. That's what divides these two ages. Okay? We see that in the scriptures. If we look to Matthew chapter 13. And we connect that with Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 13, Jesus explains one of his parables to his disciples, beginning in verse 36. He explains this parable. The parable of the weeds in the wheat field. So begin with verse 26 of or 36 of Matthew chapter 13. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house and his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the tares of the field or the wheat or the weeds in the field. He answered and said to them, he who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom. The the tares or the weeds are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. Notice this. The harvest time is what? The end of the age. Which age? It has to be this age. Not the age to come because that one doesn't have an end. That one stretches into all eternity because we have everlasting life, correct? So the harvest is the end of the age. What happens at the harvest? The reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, judgment happens at the end of this age. And all those that are unrighteous, the tares are cast into the lake of fire. You see the connection with Revelation. The son of man will send out his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend And those who practice lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire, there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So what happens? The son of man sends out his angels and he gathers together all of God's elect children. They're saved and preserved. And then all of the wicked are gathered. They're judged and they're cast into the lake of fire. And when does that happen? That happens at the end of this age, just prior to the beginning of the age to come, you see. All right. Now, look at Matthew chapter 24. Same book, same author. 
And look down to verse 27, speaking about the second coming of Christ. It says this, for as the lightning, in verse 27 of Matthew 24, as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heaven will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will what? Send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will what? Gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven To another. What happens at the return of Christ? The angels are sent forth and his elect are gathered. The division takes place. Two ages. This age, death, marriage, sin. The age to come, no death, no marriage, no more sin. What divides those two? The coming of Christ. What happens when Christ comes? The resurrection of the dead, the judgment, lake of fire for all who are wicked, completely removed from the righteous who will dwell in the new heavens and the new earth forever. How does that tie in with Revelation chapter 20? According to the Bible's own timeline, and notice we didn't have to look at the most figurative and the most controversial book in all of Scripture to establish the Bible's timeline. We looked at the very words of Jesus himself. But let me simply ask this question in regards to the wind. In Revelation chapter 20, according to a common interpretation, Jesus comes before this millennial kingdom. And then after this millennial kingdom, during which time you have resurrected saints dwelling with those who are not saved and who will die. So there's still death in the millennial kingdom, according to the common premillennial view. There's still death in the millennial kingdom time. But then they say immediately after that time, Satan's going to be released in the whole earth and all the wicked are going to be gathered together and they're going to rebel against God. Now, let me ask that, ask you this. How does that interpretation fit within the Bible's own timeline? It doesn't fit. Where do you have an age in between this age and the age to come where you have both resurrected people who will never die and you have people who are wicked and sinning and will die? You have resurrected people who will be righteous and never commit sin again and you have wicked people who are going to sin. Where you have Christ as victorious for a period of time but then you have Satan coming in in this age and deceiving the whole world And people rising up and then Jesus destroying them once again. You see, it does not fit within the Bible's own timeline. This age and the age to come. Now, does that mean we have to somehow twist or contort this passage in the book of Revelations to make it fit that timeline? No, it it fits perfectly because the word of God is consistent internally with itself. 
But some might say, and here are two of the common objections, and I understand where people are coming from, okay? I want to present these objections and try and deal with them fairly. Some might say, though, oh, but this text in Revelation chapter 20, notice in verse 1, it says, then I saw an angel coming. Is that not chronological? Is that not following chronologically in time and space? Chapter 19, so don't we have... The kings of the earth and the armies gathered here and then Jesus returns and he defeats them. And then Satan is bound. And there's this thousand year period because it says then. Here's my response to that. And I think it's a very simple response and it makes sense with the whole book. Remember, John is seeing visions, visions one after the other. The then is saying, then I saw. Here's the next vision. It's not saying then in time and space this thing happened next in human history. He's seeing visions. He's saying, then I saw. Here's what I saw next. That's not a comment on when it happens in human history. That's just simply a comment that the seer, John, sees this vision before he sees the next vision. And he sees this vision after he saw the last vision. You see? And he does that throughout throughout the book. He says, then I saw, then I saw, then I saw, then I saw. Visions put together. But those visions are not chronological necessarily just because he's saying, I saw it next. Right? Remember, I've given the illustration like that movie Vantage Point. So, you know, I don't know how many people have actually seen the movie. It's not that I'm recommending the movie so much. As the movie, though, was structured in that There was this terrorist attack and it would give the perspective of different people that were involved in that situation and it would give their perspective for a few minutes and then it would rewind and go back to the beginning of the terrorist attack and show events preceding it, etc. and work its way to the end and it did that over and over and over again. And that's what's going on in the book of Revelation and John is seeing those visions. But he's seeing a series of visions but those visions are not... Sequential in time and space. Okay. So that's one objection. The the next objection is this. The three verses we've been focused on, it says that the devil and Satan is bound for a thousand years. And so here's the objection. If Satan is bound, how in the world does that fit with the rest of Scripture, which says Satan roams about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour? How does that fit with the scriptures that say we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and against powers and the spiritual warfare that's going on? If Satan is bound right now, which this text is teaching, that Satan is bound right now, then how does that fit with these other scriptures? Now notice, and we're going to walk through a few scriptures in closing on this. What did we already see in Mark chapter 3? Satan used, or Jesus using the very terminology of binding to refer to Satan and what was happening when Jesus was on the earth. Did we not see that exact terminology? What did Jesus say? You can't plunder somebody's house that is guarded by the strong man unless you first what? Bind the strong man. Exact same terminology. Was Satan being bound at the very time Jesus was actually on the earth 
and doing his ministry. Yes, he was. How was he being bound? In that instance, it was people who were controlled by demonic forces were being freed because Satan's power was being contained. Okay, so you see, very same terminology, binding of Satan. Look to John chapter 12. So here's what I'm proposing. I am proposing that we are in this millennial age right now. I'm proposing that this text of Revelation is describing the interadvental period, the period between Christ's first coming and his second coming. I am saying that this book, this passage in Revelation describes this age, this age that we're in now. And when Satan is finally judged at the end of Revelation 20 and verse 10, that will be the beginning of the age to come. And that's what we see then follow in the book of Revelation as it talks about the final judgment and it goes on to talk about the new Jerusalem. Okay. But what about this objection? Well, but Satan has so much power now. How can he be bound? Jesus used terminology of Satan being bound. And let's consider John chapter 12. Let me find the exact verses for you as I'm turning there. Notice, and let's uh, jump in at verse 30. Jesus answered and said, This voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. When does he say the ruler of this world is cast out? Now, Jesus says, now in my work, in my ministry, in Revelation, it says he took hold of that dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, bound him for a thousand years, cast him into the bottomless pit, shut him up, set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more. And then he'll be released for a little while. Jesus is saying during his ministry, Satan is being cast out. In Luke chapter 10 as the 70 came back and reported that demons were being cast out by the power of God through their hands, Jesus said, I saw Satan like lightning falling from heaven. In Revelation chapter 12, which Brother Rick read for us, it speaks about Satan being cast down from heaven to the earth. And then it says he knows that he has a little while, so he makes war on the saints while he's on this earth. But you see, what I'm pointing to is that Jesus is saying that in his completed ministry and then in his life and death and resurrection, that he has dealt Satan a massive blow, a decisive blow, that he has triumphed over Satan and that Satan in those events was being bound, but bound in what way? Notice Notice in our text in Revelation, it says specifically how Satan is bound. It mentions one specific way. 
Okay? We need to be very precise with the text. We need to be very precise. We need to take it on its own terms. Okay? Satan is bound, and what is the result of his binding according to Revelation chapter 12 and verse 3? What does it say? Somebody find it for me. That he should not deceive the nations any longer. The text tells us what the binding of Satan accomplishes. And that is that he should not deceive the nations any longer. Think about this in the whole flow of the book of Revelation and what happens when he's loosed. What happens when he's loosed? Look down at at 7. Now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison. And what's he going to do? Go out and deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to what? To gather them together for Armageddon, for the final battle. What is the purpose of the binding of Satan? It means that Satan, as a result of Christ's glorious work, is no longer able to deceive all the nations and bring about Armageddon ahead of God's timetable. God is in control of Satan. Satan cannot bring about Armageddon prematurely where he brings all the nations together to fight against and seek to overthrow the people of God. And think about this for just a moment. When Christ triumphed over Satan on that cross, when he burst from the grave and triumphed over death, with Satan as the chief angel of death, when he triumphed over Christ, were entire nations loosed at that time as the gospel went forth? Absolutely. Answer this for me. At the time Jesus came, how many nations on the face of the earth were Christian nations, were godly nations? How many? One. There was only one nation who had any semblance of godliness, but even it, the nation of Israel, rejected Christ and had him crucified. So, in essence, no nation on the face of the earth was predominantly a godly nation. And it, now, as the gospel went forth and the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church and they proclaimed that Christ is risen... Light began to spread throughout the world. The nations became enlightened to the message of Christ and who he is. People began to be saved. You think about the Reformation in Europe was lit up. Before then, the whole Roman Empire heard the gospel of Christ. That had never happened in human history, ever. But Jesus triumphed. He bound Satan and the gospel has gone forth. And you see, brothers and sisters, that's where we have hope. That's where we have hope in this age, which is characterized by death and by sin and by marriage. (laughs) We have hope because Satan is bound and the gospel can go forth and people can be saved and brought in. And Satan will not bring about Armageddon until God wants it to happen. 
And that's when he's going to be released. And when he does, he will deceive all the nations. There's going to be a mass deception. Only God's elect children will not be deceived, but but some from all nations. And the kings of the nations are going to rise up, which is described over and over here in, in Revelation. And then Christ is going to come back and it's not going to be little battles here and there, little battles. And the enemy wins a battle here and then Jesus wins a battle here. It's going to be boom, they're toast, they're done. A decisive victory. You see, I believe that's the Bible's timeline here. And this gives glory to Christ. First Corinthians chapter 15, it says he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Is he reigning now? He's reigning now. He is reigning now. He is triumphant now. Does that mean that all sin, all evil, all death, everything's been put away? No, but that's coming. (laughs) That day is coming. And for now, we recognize, you know what? Satan is bound in his ability to mass deceive the nations and bring about Armageddon. But yet he is still at work. His minions are still at work. And just answer me this, folks. Do we even need Satan to sin? Do you have first of all, is Satan omnipresent? Is Satan everywhere all at once like God? No, he's not. The reality is. Probably none of us here have ever had Satan directly trying to influence us. He can't be everywhere all at once. But we don't even we don't need Satan, nor do we even need a demon trying to tempt us to sin for us to sin. The Bible says in the book of James that we're, we, we sin when we're drawn away by our own lusts and enticed. We don't even need the devil or the demons for us to sin. So... This still fits, though. Satan still is on this earth and he still seeks to work, but he is limited in what he can do, according to this text. People are still individually being deceived and they are sinning against God. But the power of Satan to deceive all the nations and bring about Armageddon is restrained. Satan is bound. Christ has bound him. And you know what? We all believe, if we believe the scriptures, that Jesus dealt a fantastic blow to the evil spiritual forces. But that doesn't mean that Satan has no power to work. We all believe that. Because if you look at Colossians chapter 2, what does it say? He spoiled the principalities and powers. He made a show of them openly. He triumphed over them in it. But yet we still wrestle against principalities and powers. It's an already not yet. He has secured the victory. But yet there's still an influence of evil in this age, which will one day be entirely removed from the people of God. Christ has triumphed. And he said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And what's our marching order? Go. Go make disciples of all the nations. How can we do that with any hope? 
Because Satan is not bound so that he deceives all the nations. And so we go and we proclaim the gospel and we teach people to observe everything that Christ has commanded. And then he says, what? Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Even to the end of this age, he is with us. In spirit, and then he will be with us bodily when the new age begins. May Christ receive the glory. Father, thank you for the time we've had in your word and pray that you would bless this to our hearts and that we would rejoice in the victory that Christ has accomplished. I pray you'll bless the mealtime we have together, the fellowship we have together, the celebration of Peggy's birthday that we have together. May you bless all of this time. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.